party. <laughs> we could think about what we might think of and what we've been talking about as the path of practice or um, or look at the the realization that uh, that we the Buddha was pointing to that uh, a lot of different traditions and different Buddhist traditions uh, point to as um, we can think of it in a lot of different ways, and it's spoken about in different ways, and and different descriptions or uh, ways of holding this might be meaningful to us at different times. And so, you know, we hear things like realizing our our Buddha nature or resting in natural great perfection, or we hear of things like uh, the unfolding of. Uh, stages of progress of insight, stages of understanding that lead to uh, awakening experiences and all these different um, kinds of descriptions. And they may make sense. It may be something we can relate to there at different times. There's one way that the, the path is described, our path of practice and meditation and in the spiritual um teachings of the Buddha, and it's a way that I think is always useful and always powerful, and this is something that uh, Jill touched on very briefly. We haven't really talked about in any great depth, and that's in terms of what are called, what's called the ripening or the perfecting of the ten paramis, or paramita is the word in Sanskrit. And uh, I think Jill mentioned that these are our ten qualities, and we could think of them as noble, beautiful qualities, and in this tradition, it's said that the Buddha perfected these over um, many, many countless lifetimes. And uh, the story I told the other night of the Prince Five Weapons and the Sticky-Haired Monster was um, based on, it was my version, but very closely based on one of the these Jataka stories, which there is a collection in one of the collections of texts that are stories of the the previous lives of the Buddha to be, the Bodhisattva, um, and perfecting or working on different qualities in different lifetimes. So I'll list these ten. Uh, you don't have to remember them, and uh, perhaps we'll post them uh, if you're interested. So the first one is uh, dana or generosity, giving. The second one, sila, ethical conduct. Nekama, renunciation. Panya, wisdom. Virya, which Jill spoke about in great depth, uh, energy or effort or courage. Diligence. Kanti, patience. Satcha, truthfulness or honesty. Aditana, determination or resolve. Metta, kindness, friendliness. And Upeka, equanimity. So it's it's said um, that the Buddha developed these and brought them to perfection, and that the end of the path then can be seen as um, we can see this these developing of these not only as the path of practice, but when they're brought to perfection, we could say then that's the culmination of the path. So um, you you can see them as the natural is expression of the mind that is no longer under the sway of the energies of greed, hatred, and delusion that we've been talking about. 
And I think this way of looking at our practice and seeing the path is, it's very common. It's much more common in Asian countries, I think. And many of my teachers, they often talk about practice in terms of ripening of paramis and, and people having uh, a ripeness in certain uh, areas of their life in terms of these. And I think it um, has to do with the fact that in in these cultures, they hold a very broad view of practice and see it as unfolding over lifetimes. And there's an understanding that um, that not everyone's the same. You know that we we have uh, we we have different we're different in this regard. And we don't have to believe in rebirth; it might not be meaningful for us. We don't we didn't grow up with that in our lives. Most of us, maybe some of us. But even if we look in terms of a single lifetime, we can see this idea of births and deaths and rebirths. We can see it over the course of a single day. How many different births and and passings away of a lifetime and new births do we see? Even just in the course of a single period of meditation where we can go from... Um, you know, beautiful, sublime states and then take birth into very difficult, challenging states all within the space of 45 minutes. So we can see that our life as this flow of um, new births, each morning, each moment can be seen as a birth and it passes away in another one. And through, over the course of a lifetime, over the course of a retreat, we're um, developing, perfecting, um, bringing these paramis closer towards uh, this uh, perfection, you could say, in terms of this model of looking at things. And sometimes we meet people and it seems that one or more of these qualities, they just seem to be highly developed by, by their nature. We, know, we may know people in our lives who are just seem to be just kindness seems to come out of them. It just seems to be in their very core or they seem to be, um, you know, very tolerant or um, generous. My father was a very, very generous man. It just seemed like it was just sort of his nature. He didn't, um, wasn't something I don't think he really thought about, but he had a lot of generosity. And my mother was very, um, he had a lot of these qualities highly developed, but I was thinking of energy because when Jill was talking the other night and of my mother who, you know, she was just my mom. She didn't seem special to me as a kid, but when I think about her, when I thought about her, uh, you know, as, a, as an adult, it was pretty impressive the amount of energy she just seemed to have. You know, she was, she took care of the house and my family and at that age, there was kind of traditional division of labor there. So she did the house. She um, was the cook. She did all the cooking, and she was a very good cook. She used to. She made a beautiful garden. She did all, really all the gardening. She was a really good potter, and she made almost all the dishes that we used in the house. And she um, worked as as part of her her interest in pottery. She was part of a a cooperative gallery, crafts gallery. So she worked there part of the time. Um, that came a little later. She made a lot of her own clothes. She really was good at sewing. She um, 
she was always doing volunteer work. She would deliver meals to housebound elderly people. She taught sewing and other uh, things in poor communities. She was a counselor at family planning clinic. Um, she was a, a draft counselor and a peace activist during the Vietnam War. She, she and I used to go to marches together. <laughs> and uh, she raised four kids. I'm the youngest. She taught, she was a nursery school teacher at some point. All these things. And it wasn't hyperactive or, you know, compulsive. It's just my mom's style. It's just the way she was. There was this ease and grace to it all. So it just seemed like that parami, that quality was just highly, she came into life with that highly developed and other ones too. And I think it's so useful to look at our practice in terms of developing these qualities because it really expands the breadth of what we think of as practice because we can get very focused on the meditation and on trying to do this thing in meditation and whatever and our ideas about what that is. And, and so it expands the breadth of what we think of as the spiritual life and our practice and it also tends can help to cut through our tendency to be constantly evaluating our practice in terms of, you know, am I concentrated enough? Am I somehow getting it right? And all our comparing mind and our judgment and assessing and wanted to, oh, am I am I measuring up? Oh, halfway through the retreat and I'm not, am I doing it right? Am I getting there? Constantly looking and our projections about others comparing mind that comes with that. So it can help cut through that. We see not everyone's the same. And, you know, if we have this idea, we think of the Buddha perfecting these lifetimes and <laughs> lifetimes. You know, what if this whole lifetime is about developing qualities of generosity or determination? What if this whole life is about developing patience? Are we okay with that? Is that okay? No. <laughs> Not okay. <laughs> you know, when we judge our experience, it's wrong, it's bad. Then we judge ourselves, we're wrong or bad because we're having it. We totally overlook the fact that just by beginning over, how many times did did you have to start again today? At least five or six times, five or six hundred. I don't, who knows? A lot, right? Anybody want to hazard a guess? It's a, it's a, it's an impressive number of times that you were willing to begin again. That is cultivating this quality of determination, of patience, of persistent effort. There is great value in that. That is not a thing to, to you know. Our usual attitude is, "Oh no." I got lost, I have to start again. No, we're cultivating these good, wholesome qualities, beautiful qualities. I uh, have a book that I, I brought with me. It's one of the more obscure commentaries to the texts. It's called Frog and Toad Together. And it's one of the more recent commentaries. It was written fairly recently. It's by um, an author named Arnold Lobel. And uh, hopefully you or understanding that I am kidding when I say it's a commentary. 
but I see it as one. It was written in the 1970s, so quite a recent one, uh, more recent than the Visuddhimagga. And I want to read you a story out of this. Um, this is uh, this is a reading level two, reading with help book, which um, is yeah, kind of my speed a lot of the time. And I, you probably noticed that I'm fond of stories. <laughs> so this story is called The Garden. And I can't show you the pictures, but um, frog is green and toad is kind of brown. And uh, they're good friends. This is the garden. Frog was in his garden, and Toad came walking by. What a fine garden you have, Frog, he said. Yes, said Frog, it is very nice, but it was hard work. I wish I had a garden, said Toad. Here are some flower seeds. Plant them in the ground, said Frog, and soon you will have a garden. How soon? asked Toad. Quite soon, said Frog. Toad ran home. He planted the flower seeds. Now seeds, said Toad, start growing. Toad walked up and down a few times. The seeds did not start to grow. Toad put his head close to the ground and said loudly, Now seeds start growing. Toad looked at the ground again. The seeds did not start to grow. Toad put his head very close to the ground and shouted, Now seeds start growing. Frog came running up the path. What is all this noise? he asked. My seeds will not grow, said Toad. You are shouting too much, said Frog. These poor seeds are afraid to grow. My seeds are afraid to grow? asked Toad. Of course, said Frog. Leave them alone for a few days. Let the sun shine on them. Let the rain fall on them. Soon your seeds will start to grow. That night, Toad looked out of his window. Drat, said Toad. My seeds have not started to grow. They must be afraid of the dark. Toad went out to his garden with some candles. I will read the seeds a story, said Toad, and then they will not be afraid. Toad read a long story to his seeds. And the next day, Toad sang songs to his seeds. And all the next day, Toad read poems to his seeds. And then the next day after that, Toad played music for his seeds. He plays the violin, apparently. Toad looked at the ground. The seeds still did not start to grow. What shall I do, cried Toad. These must be the most frightened seeds in the whole world. Then Toad felt very tired, and he fell asleep. Toad, Toad, wake up, said Frog. Look at your garden. Toad looked at his garden. Little green plants were coming up out of the ground. At last, shouted Toad, my seeds have stopped being afraid to grow. And now you will have a nice garden too, said Frog. Yes, said Toad, but you were right, Frog. It was very hard work. <clears throat> so you probably... Uh, may have gotten an idea of where I'm going with this talk. But we use this image, and it's really a good one in our practice, this image of planting seeds. Because every time we come back and start again, we reconnect with our experience. 
It's like planting a seed, a seed of awakening. And all we can do is plant the seeds. A lot of the time we're like toad and our seeds aren't coming up fast. They aren't sprouting fast enough for us. And we we ask, we plant them and we want to know how soon. We get asked a lot, well, about how long is this going to take? It happens a lot. We start practicing immediately. Are they starting to grow? We don't see results. We start yelling at our seeds. Then we start yelling at ourselves internally. We must not be doing it right. And, you know, maybe we're, we try some of Toad's strategies of, you know, he read poems and stories to his seeds and kept them company at night when they were frightened, when he thought they were frightened. But usually we don't. Usually we're not kind like that. Usually we just yell at them and we blame ourselves and we find fault with all kinds of things. The teachings are wrong. Teachers don't know what they're talking about. I don't know about culture here so much, but in the United States, where I'm from, we're very impatient as a society there. We want quick results, and we lose interest really quickly if things aren't happening as fastly, as quickly as we think they should. And You know, we're looking for, we always want a better way, and better always equals faster. A place that Jill and I have spent a long time. Jill worked there on staff, and uh, we both teach there. Done a lot of retreat time there. Uh, the Insight and Meditation Society. In the very early days, when they were first starting it, they once received a piece of mail that was addressed to the Instant Meditation Society. And that's what we want. We want instant meditation. <laughs> right? And we're so impatient that we just don't know what... Sometimes we don't even have an idea what patience might be. And as children, often we're we're told to to be patient or that patience is a virtue. And it sounds like we're being told to, you know, squash our feelings and, and somehow grit our teeth and bear it. And, and we think of it as some kind of some way that we just have to endure, endure what we don't like. And, and patience is really not this, this kind of mindless enduring. It's not about that. Or just waiting to praying for the end of this experience we don't like. We're in it, you know, if we're going to take this practice to any real depth, we're going to have to go through times when it's really hard and challenging. And if our strategy is just to to bear down and try to make it through with this uh, tension, it's not going to do us any good. If we're going to carry through, we need to have this steady, consistent, persevering kind of effort, kind of effort that Jill was talking about that's actually sustainable. Because the fruits of the practice, they don't come on our schedule, and they don't come magically. They come through our our gentle, steady, persistent effort. Usually, we don't want to learn about patience because when the times when we have to do that are when we're impatient. You know, we don't have, when things are, are difficult, we, 
we don't have to practice patience very often when things are really going the way we want them to and everything's really pleasant and easy. It doesn't come up. We have to practice patience when when times are hard, when we don't like what's going on. It's said in the in the uh, in the teachings. There's a whole Buddhist cosmology and speaks of different realms and planes of existence. Do you remember how many there are? I think there's 32. There's uh, states of uh, difficult states, very difficult states. The human realm is second from the bottom. <laughs> Most of them are these different sort of what they're sometimes called Deva and Brahma realms. Again, you can see this as just descriptions of of our our mind states and, and mental qualities. You don't have to believe in them literally, although I remember Joseph said that uh, his teacher Manindraji loved to talk about these things, and he said, you don't have to believe me. It's true, but you don't have to believe me. <laughs> but it's said that some of them are realms of where it's always pleasant. There are nothing but pleasant experiences pleasant feelings which might sound kind of good to you about now after a week into the retreat but it's also said that this human realm is the best place to practice and realize the teachings those pleasant realms and some of those kinds of realms it's said that there's there's not much motivation to practice there but it's said in this realm we have a balance of things where it's it's not so pleasant that there's no inspiration or motivation to try to understand what's going on. But there's not so much suffering that we are just crushed under the weight of it. So it's said that this is the best realm because we have a mix of those and it's about, there's the balance there. So we're, we are... Uh, encounter uh, difficult times and and we come have to face the truth of suffering but we're not crushed under the weight of it we can look at the challenges that come to us in our practice and the difficult times that happen as um they as helping us build a certain strength and determination and i think it's useful to hold them that way because um, if we're fighting and struggling against things, we're just going to wear ourselves out, exhaust ourselves. Um, but if we can cultivate care and respect for these difficult times, see them as actually, in a sense, a kind of opportunity to develop steadfastness and perseverance and tolerance, this quality of patience. I was heard a story once about someone who's been a teacher of both of ours, who's a, a monk, very highly regarded uh, teacher, uh, abbot of a monastery. And um, he was on retreat, and, and where he was practicing, there was a, a stupa like the one we have in the upper part of the garden outside the back of the of the main building there. And um, it was in an area, it was out in a, a field, and he was doing, it was a larger space, and he was doing walking meditation around circumambulating the, the stupa. And he said that every time he he came around to the, the main altar part, um, he would uh, bow and he would offer his mind state to the Buddha. <laughs> 
offer that that quality of the mind, whatever it was. And I remember the same teacher recently, I heard him speaking and he, he said, this path requires relentless patience. And I thought that was kind of a, I hadn't heard anyone speak in that way, the relentless patience. And he's, he's been at it for a long time. <laughs> You know, and it's it's so interesting in our lives and or say here and sitting in the hall, you know, and everything's going pretty well and we're kinda there's some clarity and we're connecting and we feel like, you know, we kind of have some sense of what we're doing and the practice is going along and and then just all of a sudden everything seems to fall apart for no apparent reason and we're suddenly we're struggling and we're, resi- we're resistant and our mind is full of pettiness and anger and frustration. And then another time it's okay again and it just seems to go back and forth. There's times when it seems clear and times when it's just a mess. You know, and it seems like... I mean, maybe it'd be easier if it was just didn't change so much. If it was a drag all the time, we might get used to it. But sometimes it's not too bad, and then it just falls apart again. We feel like, well, I must be doing something wrong. <clears throat> I remember not so long ago I had a chance to do a retreat a few years ago, and and at one point I felt to me like if I had never meditated, I would be better at it. It just seemed like a complete train wreck. Sometimes it feels that way. And you know, if if we're like could cause us to lose heart, but we have to just say, Oh, it's like this now. At least I know it's a train wreck. We really need to nurture and cultivate this quality of patience and, and the kindness and tolerance and forbearance and really compassion that we've been talking about and the gentleness of that. It's all part of that. It gives us the, the the steadiness and the courage to navigate this rocky terrain of a human life and all the ups and downs and and to uh, move and be flexible with these what are called the winds of change that are always blowing through the life in unpredictable ways. You know, as I was talking about this morning, we come to the retreat and we just want a little calm and ease peace and we sit down and we've got this body that's uncomfortable and will not behave the way we want it to and this wild uncontrollable mind that's all over the map and it's full of resistance and pettiness sometimes and everything we've ever repressed or done our best to forget shows up you know my question this morning about volunteers to broadcast your mind over the speaker system you know, I mean, even stuff, it's not difficult, but it's just boring or repetitious or embarrassing. And every song and every stupid television program we've watched is in there. And sometimes we're watching reruns of My Favorite Martian. You probably didn't have that when you were growing up, <laughs> revealing my age here. It's a silly TV show from the 60s about a, a Martian winds up crash landing in someone's backyard. <laughs> Did you ever see my favorite Martian? <laughs> yeah, 
you know, it's like, so there's that wacky stuff. And then there's so much stuff that we just feel is unacceptable. And maybe we've managed to sort of compartmentalize it and put it in a tidy box and nope, I'm not going to look at that. But it's going to show up. You know, if we're trying to, to keep things in a way out of our, out of our minds and hearts, out of our consciousness, sooner or later everything's going to show up. There's a story about a famous Tibetan teacher named Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche. You may have heard heard of him. Early, uh, kind of a troubled but brilliant uh, soul, really highly regarded teacher. And there was a story once he was giving a he was going to be giving an evening talk and you know other stuff a whole evening event at a, a place this was in california i believe and he was notorious for showing up late to things and people had paid a lot of money to come in a big hall and they were all waiting and waiting and waiting and finally he showed up quite late and he said um this is a quotation he, first thing he said was if you want your money back it's all right just go to the door and ask for it back it's quite okay it's fine in fact, if you haven't started the spiritual path, it's best not to begin. It's difficult, it's terrible, and you have to face all kinds of things that you won't like. As far as the ego is concerned, it's just one insult after another. And sometimes <laughs> it feels like that, right? It's just one insult after another. This nonsense the mind comes up with. But we have to have the patience to be with with all of it. We have to have a relationship with our entire being or we're never going to really go to any depth in the practice. We can't say, no, not this. We can't exclude any aspect of who we are, of our being. You know, and we have this idea that that in order to really open to insight to deepen in meditation, to really have the understandings um, that we are, our idea of what those are and, and that we have to get rid of certain kinds of experiences that might be happening and, and maybe achieve some sort of special state. But the practice happens right here and now, right in the middle of the mess, right in the heart of it. It's not in some future state of grace. And we don't know when the mind and heart may open to understanding. We don't know. <clears throat> and until we're fully enlightened, there may there are going to be times when we will be caught in confusion, struggling with something. And we can create a situation if we're just fighting against the way things are, where we're we're never good enough, we're never okay. Nothing's ever good enough. <clears throat> Usually life will present us with opportunities to develop this quality of patience that we usually wish we weren't getting. We mostly, we learn about patience by coming to understand impatience. And often practice unfolds this way. We discover um, letting go and release by bringing attention to where we're clinging and holding on. 
and we discover about the balance of equanimity by understanding the reactivity in the mind and heart. This is really, um, this is how it works. It's how the practice works. And I remember there was a time, maybe this was near the time, I, I don't know, when we, when I first maybe got to know Jill, but uh, sometimes during that time, but when my parents, before they, well, they were still alive, and my sister and I, were very involved in their care, and it was really difficult. Here's a story of patience. My parents were together for 70 years. I have a feeling there was a lot of patience involved on both of their parts, especially my mother. (laughs) She had a lot of patience with another one of the paramis. My father was a wonderful person, but living with him would have, well, did require (laughs) patience at times, certainly on my mother's part. But it was just so it was so hard because my my mother they both lived to be almost ninety two. They died only um, oh, about ten or twelve weeks apart, and um, I mean, well, spending time with our family is a really good reality check. <laughs> as far as you know, we can. It's kind of easy to feel all pretty wise and equanimous and meditation centers, but hanging out with our family is. That's a real reality check on how things are going. And so it was so hard, and there were so many times, you know, my parents were wonderful people, but they knew, they didn't do it on purpose, but they knew how to push my buttons, and I'd be, you know, suddenly acting like a morose teenager or an angry child. And, you know, so many times I had to apologize for things I said, because it was just... It was so difficult, you know, and my mother's de- mental decline, really challenging. And so getting to understand impatience was just a critical part of that time and being willing to, to you know, make amends when, impa- and when impatience had the upper hand. So through this process of getting to understand impatience and exploring it and how does it feel, how is it showing up, what are the emotions, what happens when I get identified with it. We learn how to uh, develop a wise relationship and, the, and patience grows through that process. I think this points to a couple of um, things that are important um, aspects of patience and also supports for its development of patience. So the first of these is a quality that we might kind might call um gentle forbearance. So even at times when impatience is really triggered here on retreat and other times in our life, if we have this quality of gentle forbearance, this willingness to stay there, stay with it without getting tight, um it's it's a great support, and it would allow us uh, times uh, when we might touch into, say, our commitment to non-harming supports this quality because then we might um, give us enough space, enough ability to exercise some restraint where we aren't necessarily acting out that impatient energy. And then to make amends, if we do act it out, as I was saying in my case, this willingness with this gentle forbearance. It may give us uh, some space in mind um, to touch another 
it gives us the possibility to open to another really powerful support for patience. And that's the quality of uh, and spirit of forgiveness. So with with this gentle forbearance, this tolerance, willingness to stay, we can start to uh, reflect and connect with the inner turmoil that we might be present in it for another person. And this opens the door to the understanding and compassion that are the key to forgiveness. Because we see that harmful actions are born from confusion and suffering in the mind. All actions have their genesis in the mind. And we see how confusion and suffering and pain in the mind often lead to harmful actions unskillful, harmful actions. And so we have the possibility to distinguish between a being and their essential goodness that has been covered up by confusion and pain and suffering and has led to unskillful actions. And so there's a key thing with forgiveness is we this, this compassion for the suffering mind because we know we can see in our own mind times when Confusion and pain or greed or whatever has led to actions that have caused harm. We all, we all can probably find, reflect on times in our lives where this has been the case. And so we can start to forgive a confused and suffering being, not necessarily the actions they have done. This is key in forgiveness. Some actions are not forgivable. They are not and never will be okay. But we can start to open the possibility of forgiving a suffering being who has done them. We see, oh, it's, it's the confusion and pain that have acted. Our deeply, our deeply conditioned Patterns in the mind give us a lot of opportunity to develop patience. You know, and we see sometimes there are patterns that we feel like we've seen from every angle over and over. And they're just so woven into the fabric of our conditioning that they, they just, even we can see them coming and we're, we're going to get caught again. One of my uh, teachers and colleagues calls these karmic knots. I think that's kind of a good description. I was, I've been in some of the meetings, been using this illustration. I think it comes from our teacher, Joseph Goldstein, but it's like there's a hook with some bait on it and we're a fish and we just watch ourselves and I'm going to go and I'm going to bite it. And we just watch ourselves going and we, you know, it's like we know it's not going to do us any good, but I'm going for it again. And we just get caught. I remember on a, a retreat not that long ago again, maybe the same one where I thought if I'd never meditated, I'd be just as good at it. I got really caught by an old, very painful old habit of mine that, you know, was just in there really in a deep way. And I remember saying to myself at some point, I said, you know, Greg, this is probably not the last time you're going to feel this way. And it was such a kind thing to do for myself in that moment. There was such kindness in that. It was not resignation or defeat, but it was like, this is, this baby is going to stick around. 
and and you're going to have to feel this way again. And and there was implicit in that was this feeling that I'm not going to beat myself up or or abandon myself because this is happening again. You know, it takes great patience, so much patience and kindness. You know, so patience gives us the possibility to see that these patterns, they're not the obstacles to our freedom, they're actually the um, vehicles. It's like Jill's saying from our, the teacher Eugene Cash, a friend of our friend, person we know, if it's in the way, it is the way. I love that. That's the vehicle. That's the very thing that's going to lead us to understanding. So we can reframe our experience, reframe what's happening, and right in the middle of something that feels like it's just an obstacle and a problem, we can find that the heart can shift and the heart can open right in the middle of it with this quality of patience. <clears throat> there are a couple of, uh, from one of the actual commentary texts, not the frog and toad one, um, there's a, a kind of a, sometimes there are these technical definitions that are actually point to some useful things. Um, this one is, I'll try to be uh, a little quick here, but it's said that patience has the characteristic, it often talks about these in terms of characteristics, function, and manifestation, and proximate cause. So it says that patient has the characteristic of acceptance, its function is to endure the desirable and the undesirable. Its manifestation is tolerance or non-opposition. And seeing things as they really are is its proximate cause. So I think there's some really interesting considerations. So it says patience, the characteristic is acceptance. And I we talking about acceptance in my RAIN acronym this morning and pointing out the, the importance is to remember that it's not uh, a defeated or a state of resignation or defeat, that acceptance is actually vital and alive and connected, but it's standing on the reality of things. It's accepting this is the way it is. This is the truth of the moment. It's like this, not like I want it to be or think it should be. And it's said that the proximate cause... I think this leads to that. It says the proximate cause for its arising is seeing things as they really are. We see the truth of things, and the truth of things um, will can often lead us to uh, this quality of patience. It's like this, and I need to bear with it in a patient and gentle way. <clears throat> You see that things are, are um, when we open to deeply to the truth of things, we see that uh, things are are changing, they're uncontrollable, they're conditioned, and so we see it's a un- natural unfolding. And it's not our choice, it's not going to happen on our schedule. And then this, this description of the function to deserve, des- endure the uh, desirable and undesirable, or you could say the pleasant or unpleasant, or the um, agreeable and disagreeable. And there's a, a a discourse where the Buddha is 
speaking to and teaching his son, Rahula, who became a monk when he was grown up. And he says, Rahula, develop meditation that is like the earth. For when you develop meditation that is like the earth, agreeable and disagreeable contacts contacts will not invade your mind and remain. So it's this quality of being able to sit uh, like a mountain, like the earth, impartial and firm. We sit like a mountain. We sit like the earth, and, and the mind and heart are not shaken by the changing flow of things. And it's interesting that it says that we're, the function is to endure the pleasant and the unpleasant, or the agreeable and the disagreeable. And we don't usually think of pleasant, agreeable things as something we have to endure. But I think what this points to is this meaningful relationship with the truth of change. We endure the agreeable in that we know that it's not going to last. And so we are able to open to it and enjoy it. And our world is not shattered or shaken when it changes and passes away. Our happiness is not dependent on its staying. There's a... uh, different descriptions of patience, but this is um, from a poet. It's just one line, but I think it's a beautiful description of this quality. This is from a poet named uh, John Chardy, and he said that um, patience is the art of caring slowly. And I think it's a lovely description of um, this this quality, this manifestation of patience from that technical description that said it's manifestation is tolerance and non-opposition. No, it's this caring slowly, this ability to show up for our experience without uh, fighting against the way it is. And um, so we, we don't falter when it's difficult. We don't flee from challenging things, but we aren't always fighting against it and exhausting ourselves. We find this middle way this uh, quality of non-opposition. This is a, uh, some words from a teacher, Tanisaro Bhikkhu, uh, um, a monk. Uh, it goes by the name of Tan Jeff. Uh, it's done a lot of translations and uh, he wrote... Um, this about uh, this sense of of um, things unfolding slowly. That's one thing to really important to remember is that um, most worth many. I'd say most worthwhile things in life take time to develop and grow. He speaks to this. Good things always take time. The trees with the most solid heartwood are the ones that take the longest to grow. And so we do the practice focusing on what we're doing rather than getting into an internal dialogue about when the results are going to come and what they're going to be like and how we can speed it all up. Most of the time our efforts to speed things up actually just get in the way. As for whether the results are coming as quickly as you'd like or when they do come, whether they're going to stay for as long as you'd like, that's going to depend on what you're doing here and now. Our desire to have the results come, to have them stay, is not going to make them come here, not going to keep them here. The actual doing of the practice, that's what will make the difference. 
So I'll close uh, this evening's talk with a, a lovely poem I found years ago. It's called Dreaming the Real by Linda France. I'm lying down looking at the color of sky falling through the trees, dreaming the real, tasting what it feels like to love it. Why did it take me so long to let go, simply exhale so the day could breathe itself in and open without me standing in the way? How could I forget the tender grace of my own body, strong as this blue, tender as the white of the wild blossom, warm as midday light? Let me practice a patience bold enough to hold every weather, trusting the elements, the beauty of rain and all its shades of gray. I want whatever's real to be enough. At least it's a place to begin and to master the art of loving it Feel it love me back under my skin. Thank you for your patience this evening, your kind attention. Um. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.